1: That's better, H-E-L-P, dot com.
3: You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. Today, we're bringing you a little something different. It's an episode from our friends at the podcast Future Hindsight. Their show is predicated on the idea that civic participation is fundamental to a successful democracy, as you know, that is something we could not agree with more. In this episode, host Mila Atmos speaks with Sungyeon choi Choimaro, the executive director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, whose mission is to elevate AAPI women and girls to impact policy and drive systematic change in the United States. Mila and Yan discuss life under the broad Asian American label, the myth of the model minority, anti-Asian hate and stereotypes, and how Asian-Americans can find their civic power in modern America. So without further ado, here's Mila Atmos for Future Hindsight.
4: I've lived in this country for more than three decades, and over the years, while filling out official forms to categorize my identity, I never knew which box to check. I used to check other quite a lot, At one point, and this is a little embarrassing, I would tick Pacific Islander because I was taking it very literally. And Java, the island I'm from in Indonesia, is indeed in the Pacific. When I got to college, the Asian student societies never seemed to be for people like me. They celebrated Chinese New Year, and the members were mostly Chinese-American students. It wasn't until I became an American citizen that my identity became solidly hyphenated. I became an Asian American. But how does this category that I'm in, this identity that I've evolved to claim as my own, as an Asian American woman, how does this category play into my participation in civic life? Are we a block? Are we a group with shared goals and values? I've been thinking about how a show on civic engagement that is hosted by an Asian American can be a place for a conversation that enriches our common understanding about what it means to walk in the U.S. with Asian skin, and beyond that, the role all of us can play, Asians and non-Asians, in weaving our diversity into a cohesive democracy. Our guest today, Sang Yon choi Moro, is the Executive Director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, or NAPOV. Sang welcome to Future Hindsight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So to start, tell us a little bit about the goals and mission of NAPOF.
1: Sure. So the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, which we go by NAPOF, was founded 25 years ago by a group of Asian American women after the Beijing United Nations Conference on Women, which happened the year before, where many of these women realized at the conference itself that they're, as you mentioned earlier, hyphenated or two-part, or bicultural identity wasn't fully seen and accepted. And so uh, they came back from that conference feeling like they went as part of the U.S. delegation, yet Americans didn't see them as Americans. Um, And in fact, some of the women were even told, oh, you're Korean-American, you should join the Korean delegation. Sort of perpetuating this constant perpetual foreigner stereotype about us. And so these women came back, actually 100 of them, in fact, and had a conference of their own in L.A. and decided to create an organization that would be for us, Asian American Pacific Islander women living in the United States to amplify issues that impact us.
4: I kind of want to back up a little bit since you mentioned that, you know, some people say, well, you're Korean American, so why don't you just join the Korean delegation? Do you want to try to define what it means to be Asian American or what it means to you?
1: Sure, I can tell you what it means to me. So as you mentioned, the concept or this idea that there is quote unquote Asians is very flawed. It is the largest continent in the world with the most diverse population with the most number of languages and ethnic groups. And so to this idea that we're going to distill it all down to this one word called Asian seems flawed. And yet that's a category that's been created for, you know, the census in the United States. And so much of uh, resources that are delegated and decisions that are made regarding government resources are based on this thing called the census. And so I think. For me, it's about the utility of the word rather than really more of a personal identity. I embrace it as a way to identify with other people who I can build power with. We can say we are a block, that we, you know, by increasing our count in that category, we're able to get more resources to our community, get our foot in the door, and then to explain Asian isn't really a thing. We need language resources in 15 languages. You can't just say, pick one Asian language. The way we get treated is as if Asia is a country, but once we can get our foot in the door and get recognized to say, yes, you have a large Asian American population in your district or in your state, then we can have further conversations about the nuances and how our community needs to be addressed and met in our various diversities.
4: So what are the origins of... Asian American as a term? Because you mentioned the census, and really, it's a way of at least building power as a block. But in a way, it's really imposed from the outside, right?
1: Oh, it's imposed by white people, white Americans. They came up with this category as a way to count people that generally look like, I don't know, I guess, from Asia, whatever that means. Because again, you know, there are blue-eyed, blonde-haired Asians, and there are very dark-skinned, curly-haired Asian. I mean, we kind of run the gamut in terms of the way our features look, but it was a way for, for the U.S. government to categorize a group of people where they didn't know how to categorize them, right? There's a camp of people who really would like for us to rid of that identity or that term altogether and identifying the ways that we want to identify. Like, why do we want to continue to use this term that really doesn't reflect who we are and the values we hold? And again, to me, it's really about getting the foot in the door so that we can have the more nuanced, complicated conversation if we're not even seen at all, right? If we're not even on the map, how are we going to have those conversations to begin with? And so I think it's not necessarily ideal, but it is what we have. And it's not ideal because we're not the ones who created it. It was imposed on us, as you said.
4: Well, It's interesting you say that the approach here is to just get in the door and at least be a part of the conversation and then reshape the conversation from the inside. Well, while we're doing that right here, I want to also take this opportunity to smash the model minority myth and maybe also talk about how damaging it has been. What are your thoughts here?
1: So, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the term model minority was coined by a white sociologist who wrote an article for Times Magazine back, I think it was in late 50s or early 60s, essentially comparing Japanese Americans to Black Americans, to African Americans. It was comparing Japanese Americans and why they are the model minority because they have these nuclear families and they work hard. I mean, you should read that article, The Origins of Model Minority, the term, because it is pretty ridiculous. And it was a way to put a wedge between different races of people, right? And I think what Asian Americans in general have done is bought into that idea that let's use that to our advantage. We are seen as the quote-unquote likable minority, and therefore, as long as we can mimic and be as close to whiteness as we can, we will be successful in this country, and we will accomplish and achieve our American dream, which is another, in my opinion, false myth that we all fall into the trap of. Somehow, if we work hard enough, we can accomplish it. Whereas I believe that there are systemic barriers in this country that allow some people to be able to accomplish the American dream more successfully and not others. So when you look at the Asian American population, for me, the challenges and the thing that really makes me frustrated is that the model minority myth does advantage certain ones of us, especially East Asians. So we've run with it. We've been told, and I say we because I'm Korean American myself, that, you know, you come here, you put your head down, don't ruffle feathers, work hard, study hard, go to Ivy League school, become a lawyer, become a doctor. There you go. You've accomplished that American dream. Not realizing that there are others in our community who have come in similar ways, who have not been given the same benefit of doubt, same advantage, because Their skin is darker because they're not East Asian. They don't have the connections. They don't come with, you know, the resources from home. When you look at the history of Asian Americans and how we've come here, sometimes it's for economic opportunities. And then we also have refugees. We have a wide range. Yet because we're all seen as this quote unquote model minority, all successful, all making lots of money, having graduated from these fancy schools and with fancy jobs. That our community continues to be disadvantaged in resources being invested in our community so that those that don't have those opportunities off the bat are able to have them and gain them. This is one of the things that NAPOF really works on is dispelling the model minority myth that we are not your submissive, quiet, follow the rules, smart whiz kids. And I think that over the last couple of years especially, has come to light that we see that it's not enough to mimic and be close to whiteness as much as possible or just follow the rules, quote unquote, the rules that help you become successful. And we know that Asian Americans have, you know, been victims of systemic racism historically as well. And we try to sweep that under the rug because we have this idea that the model minority myth is going to save us, and it's
4: not. Yes, for sure. I have lived under that same model for many, many years, all of my life. And I guess it's really hard to shake, though, right? If you're Asian and you live here, you know, I feel like, personally, I continually feel that I have to keep my nose to the grindstone and perform, you know. And although, of course, I'm not in school, I still feel like I need to get straight A's. I mean, I think that feeling hasn't gone away. But you talk a lot also just now about diversity. And that's something that I alluded to in the introduction, that being Asian on campus, for example, I always felt like, oh, but I'm not like other Asians. First of all, because I was an international student, I really felt like, well, I'm not American, so I'm not quite sure why I would be making community with these people. That makes no sense to me, right? And I think that this is something that's also true even if you're American and you have grown up here, but your ethnic background is different from other Asians. I'd love to hear your thoughts about really how diverse we are. You know, you said that there are some Asians who are blonde with blue eyes and some, you know, are classic East Asian looking. And then there are some, who, of course, are dark and have curly hair and how we can actually come together as a block, because at the end of the day, maybe that's our only chance in building power.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I like to think about in, in broader terms what it means to be a non-white person in this country or to not fully benefit from white supremacy because that's ultimately what this is all about. It is really about the fact that we are living in a country that was established in a hierarchy where originally black folks, non-white people, weren't considered people, and then they were considered three-fifths people. We live in a country where that language has been used to describe people and completely erase people of dignity. And so I want to start with where we have commonality. And I think this is what's really hard is that so many Asian Americans don't want to associate ourselves with other people of color. Because again, buying into the model minority myth, they want to be more like white people than be like other people of color. But the reality is when we look at our history in this country and not, not even that far, look at the last two years, And even before that, with the atrocious treatment of South Asians, Muslims, and Middle Easterners after 9-11, right? The way Sikh Americans have been attacked. We cannot deny that there is something shared about being on the receiving end of white supremacy and fear of people of color. And so I, I think when we start there and talk about it much more broader... Then it becomes about our collective effort to fight white supremacy versus coming together to build a collective identity around ethnicity. Because that's not that's not what we are about, you know. I, and I think we have a very similar story because I I came to the U.S. over two decades ago as an international student, and similarly I, I went to a a campus um, Asian American student meeting thing, and I was an international student and. And I'd actually grown up in India, going to boarding school. And if you look at any map, India is squarely in Asia. And so I invited my Indian friends to come to this meeting with me, right? I show up and somebody goes, well, why did you invite them? And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, well, they're not Asian. I'm like, have you looked at a map? I was floored. I had never imagined that Indians <laughs> would be considered Asian, but here we are living in this country where East Asians are saying things like that. And and then a few weeks later, I happened to have roommates who were biracial. They were Filipina, white, and then the other uh, roommate was Japanese and white, you should, you should that, right? And so. We were like, oh, no, 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 that's not space for us. That's for like the Asian, Asian students. And I was like, oh, don't be silly. You're you're literally Asian American, right? So I bring them. And again, they're like, why'd you bring them? And I'm like, because they're Asian American. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous of this gatekeeping that was happening by East Asian students. That was my first year living in the United States. And so one of the things that I've committed to is to expand the table and to be inclusive of everybody that wants to join and be at the table. And so when I talk about, Asian-Americans having blue eyes and blonde hair, you know, talking about the folks that are coming from Central Asia, from Afghanistan, from Uzbekistan, these places. And if they don't want to identify as part of our community, that's fine with me. But if they do, I'm more than happy to say, yeah, of course, look at a map like you are Asian-American. So for me, it's really been about expanding that table and challenging, especially East Asians, about who gets to be identified as Asian-American and who doesn't. Um, even recently, when we're talking about all these hate crimes that are happening directed at mostly East Asians, and, or that's at least the perception we have, napuf did a survey a, a national polling earlier this year. In fact, the poll ran in February where 74% of all respondents, we made sure we had a cross-section of our community. So we had South Asians, Southeast Asian, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiians, and East Asians, and we pulled across the board, and across the board, 74% of the respondents that they had experienced some sort of harassment, discrimination, or racism in the last year. This is not an East Asian issue. Maybe some of us, especially in the East Asian community, is coming to realization that we're being scapegoated and that we're being harassed, but this was happening to South Asians, especially the Muslim community, the Sikh community in significant numbers and it actually hasn't stopped. And so it's about being able to talk about our particular experience. Like when the shutdown first happened, my only outlet to get out was to go on runs. And so I would go on these runs and I wouldn't wear a mask when I'm running. You know, I had two incidences where people threw rocks at me and chased me and said, go home and you know put on a mask. You're spreading coronavirus, go back to China, all these things. I know so many of us have had that experience and it shouldn't limit us to fighting for protection of our own immediate family community. It should really propel us to think about all the people that live in this country who fear for their lives when they go out in public. That's really, for me, ultimately where we need to land, that we're able to take our particular experience and then to rise up with other people who have had similar experiences and to fight together. And so when you think about it that way, then it's not so much about erasing our particular identities to be united, but it's really focusing on the issues that unite us regardless of our background.
3: We've got more of this conversation from Future Hindsight coming up after a quick break. If you want more conversations about civic life in America, you can check out futurehindsight.com. Mila and her guests have tackled an amazing array of subjects from protecting free speech to the election October surprise to unions and racial justice. There's so much more to listen to and there are so many ways to be a civic participant in America. Again, you can check all of that out at futurehindsight.com.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right?
3: We're back. You're listening to a special episode of Civics 101. Because, well, it isn't an episode of Civics 101. Today we are featuring an episode from our Little D Democracy podcast friends over at Future Hindsight. Host Mila Atmos is in conversation with sung Yan Choi-Morrow, the executive director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. And Mila spoke about the fact that attacks against Asian Americans, regardless of nationality, though they've gained plenty of prominence during the COVID-19 pandemic, have been happening for a long time in America. And what can be done to stop this kind of hate going forward?
4: You know, the hashtag Stop Asian Hate, I don't think that's working in a way that's actually going to move the needle. Or maybe I'm wrong.
1: I have very mixed feelings about it. Some days I wake up and I'm like, okay, you know, we're all going to work together. We're getting recognition, like something's going to happen. And then, honestly, in January, I mean, you live in New York City, so obviously you knew about Michelle Guo's murder, Christina Yuna Lee's murder, and then a slew of murders of Asian American women in Albuquerque who work in spas. And so I was getting these media inquiries again like asking me what I thought was going on and they're like, "Well, why is this happening again?" right? And I said, "Well, it's not that it's happening again. It hadn't stopped. You just stopped paying attention because nobody was like gruesomely murdered." And that's the problem, right? This has happened to you in the 90s. This has happened to so many Asian Americans in history, right? And you intersect The racism with sexism, and I'm sure you've experienced it. So many of us do the street harassment we get because we are Asian American women because of the way we look. You know, when I first came to this country, I cannot count the number of times people have approached me because I was a Korean woman. Oh, where are you from? Korea. Oh, you know, I served in the military. Blah blah blah, and it always inevitably leads to something lewd, something sexual. They want to say to me, you know, always, and I. Couldn't believe that in a country this big, so many men thought the exact same thing about me when they saw me. And that's the reality so many of us have lived. When I think about the enormity of that and how that even started, the first Asian woman who immigrated to the United States that's on record is this woman named Afong Mui. She's Chinese, and she was brought over by a New York businessman so that she could be on display. So that Americans could, I guess, white Americans could pay money and look at this woman and her, you know, porcelain skin and her dark hair and her tiny feet using chopsticks, speaking Chinese. That is the first image of Asian women in this country. We were entertainment to satisfy your curiosity. We were here for your consumption. And then years later, you get the first law that's discriminatory against Asian Americans. It's not the Chinese Exclusion Act, it was before that. It's called the Page Act. And it excluded specifically women coming from East Asian countries uh, if we came without a male family member, because, quote unquote, we were assumed to be prostitutes that would tempt the good men of America. And so, You know, when you think about these histories and the origin of how Asian women have been seen by America, it is no surprise that we were harassed in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and people are still being murdered for it these days. Right. And so when when I think about it in that way, it's hard for me to think that it's going to change. But what choice do we have but to continue to fight and advocate and educate and raise awareness? so that there is change because i'm not going to leave a world for my daughter where she lives under the same kind of objectification and fear in public spaces and so in some ways do i believe that this will all change you know in my lifetime i would like to think so i would hope so but i don't know i don't think we have the option to not do anything about it because it's not going to change and i do think it's better than it would have been because There are many people in our history who have fought and will continue to fight, right? It's not just about Asian Americans doing what we can, but it's really, it has to be a sea change in the way we are talked about, public narratives that are about Asian Americans. Just last year, my friend's daughter, Chinese American girl, was made fun of at school because she took some dumplings to lunch and the kids made fun of her. They're like, oh, you're eating cat. I heard Chinese people eat cat. That is propaganda that was perpetuated by the U.S. government back during the Chinese Exclusion Act, when they wanted to demonize Chinese people and to rationalize why they were kicking Chinese people out of the country. Can you believe that? How many generations later we're still hearing the same thing? And so it cannot just be us in our community levels trying. We've got to make public change. We've got to make media and entertainment change in the way they portray us, our stories, and who we are.
4: Well, so the first thing is, what can we do as Asian American women to amplify our voices and change the narrative?
1: So first, I would like to say that, like, you know, I was smiling when you were saying, but I, I had to get the A's and I had to work hard. You know, I want all Asian American women listening to this podcast to know that the world does not fall apart if you do not get an A. I'm a living proof of it. You know, we ourselves need to get out of this bondage and the stereotype and the duties and the burdens that have been placed on us that then we place on ourselves. We need to liberate ourselves from living into this stereotype, first of all, and find people, surround yourself with community, find people who are going to affirm you for who you are for me, for your B's and C's, for me, for whatever body type you are, whatever shade of skin you are, because so much of that's been ingrained in us from, you know, it's very complicated because people kind of develop cultures and cultural norms out of internalized colonialism, right? That we all believe back home, you know, what what country does not use whitening cream? We've all internalized that white is beautiful, that darker is not. And we need to break that cycle, right? Even within us. And 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 if you're just generally fair naturally, that's fine. But let's not buy into this idea that, you know, certain look is more beautiful because that's what we've been ingrained in our heads. And so I think we need to unlearn a lot of things, first of all. And I find myself catching myself too, right? That even though I don't say it out loud, I I feel the thoughts coming to my head. I'm like, oh no, that's colonialism, that's sexism that I have internalized. And then I think comes the part of having courage to speak up. And I think that's always harder because you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be, quote unquote, the difficult person. Because when you speak up, that's what you get labeled. I'm just going to generalize, but when white folks point out a, a problem, it's like, oh, it's a problem or it's just this person. But when a woman of color especially raises a problem, it's because of our ethnicity. It's because of who we are, that we're deemed as difficult to get along with, that we're seen as too loud, too opinionated. And so it's hard, but I think we need to start shedding our layers to really show up as who we truly want to show up as, because the more of us that do that, the more it's going to be accepted by society that Asian-American women are also loud and opinionated, right? I'm so tired of hearing, oh, but you're so articulate or you're so opinionated for Asian women. I mean, I get that all the time. You know, you're so outgoing for Asian women. These things that people think about us, I mean, it doesn't help that media always portrays us that way. But I think the more people, you know, non-Asian-American women encounter Asian-American women of all different personalities and and types, the better off we are and will be seen as people versus a type.
4: Yes, well... The stereotype of the demure Asian woman, you know, I think that that is a hard time dying. (laughs) It's really unfortunate. But so this midterm election year, what specifically are you working on to build political power? How are you going about that? And what is the work that you do, basically?
1: Yeah, so at NAPOF, our mission is to build power with Asian American Pacific Islander women and girls so that we're able to create systemic change to have agency to make meaningful decisions over our own bodies, our families and our communities. We believe that when we are able to create systemic change that benefit our community, we're better off for it. Right. And in order to be able to create systemic change, we have to have the power to be able to do that. As we've been talking about, there's so many things that have been imposed on us in so many ways our lives are a series of Consequences and circumstances of other people's decisions. And so, in order to change that, we need to show up and we need to participate. And so, NAPOF has been working on voter engagement and voter education and voter mobilization for the last 10 years. And prior to that, we did mostly just public policy advocacy work and narrative shift. But we believe that in order to really see these big changes we want, we need to activate our community to be participating in our civic duties, especially in voting. But more excitingly, after the voting, than to hold our electeds accountable, because voting is not the end of it. Just voting is not going to get you the changes you want to see. You need to continue to organize and engage so that our electeds are held accountable. And so this year, we're really focusing our efforts on Florida and Georgia, And every election, we have to go knock on doors and call people and explain the rules to them because it's different every time there's an election. And none of this information comes to them in a language that they read and write. And so we have to reach out in languages that our voters speak and explain. We might not reach tens and thousands of people, but this is really labor-intensive work, but we're really proud to do it because every vote should count. And people who are most disenfranchised are the people who don't have language access or education to understand the changes that are happening in the rules for election. And so so we're continuing to do that in Georgia and started doing that in Florida recently. And one of the amazing things we've seen is that, you know, as we're reaching out to our communities to help them understand the changes and how they can still vote, we see them find hope in finding solutions and continuing to work with NAPOF on other issues that impact our, our lives. And so our hope is to reach as many Asian-American women voters as possible and people who don't even think that their vote matters or that they knew they could vote. We're, we're hopeful that we're able to reach them and encourage them and get them out to vote.
4: Are you at a point where you can say that Asian-American women are a solid voting block?
1: You know, the term voting block tends to refer to people who vote in similar trends and sort of have a, a shared identity. And if you use that definition of it, we actually are. Because if you look at the polling that's been done over the years of Asian American women and our voting, we tend to prioritize similar issues and tend to vote similarly. I think the challenge is, really getting more of us out to vote consistently, because we tend to fluctuate. Some years we show up, others the other years we don't. And what we need to do in order to be really taken seriously as a voting block is to prove that our collective efforts can be consequential. And so I'm hopeful that Asian Americans are the fastest growing population in the United States still. And I'm hopeful that the more we're out there and engaging people and talking about how easy it is to vote, how you are entitled to vote, you know, you'd be surprised at the number of people who tell me and tell us that, oh, I I shouldn't vote. Like, this is not my country. And we're like, well, you're a U.S. citizen, so this is your country and you should vote. I think we've also internalized this like perpetual foreigner stereotype that's been put on us to think that we're somehow always guests in this country that we helped build, that we helped develop that we pay taxes in. And so it's really about changing that mentality with folks. And it's one of the most rewarding things I think, you know, that we do is to see that shift in people, to feel like they don't have to feel just grateful as a guest in this country, but that they can take ownership and to, to take ownership in a way to chart out our own history and to care for this country that, you know, reflects our values. So as
4: an everyday citizen, what are two things we could be doing, especially as Asian-Americans, to advance this idea that we should all be voting, first of all, especially if we are Asian and we think that we don't belong, and essentially to build community and really make our legislators accountable to us?
1: So first thing is everybody needs to call all of your moms and dads and uncles and aunties and grandparents and make sure whatever state they live in, that they know how to access their ballot. It's amazing how there's so many of us who are running around doing this work professionally could also have more reach when we reach out to our own family members as well. And so I encourage everyone to check. Don't assume that your parents are voting, that your relatives are voting, your siblings are voting. Don't assume. Call them, check, and not only ask them if they're going to vote, but we need to start having conversations with our family members around what impacts our lives and how our vote can reflect the kinds of changes we want to start to see in this country. So, Educating our family members is as important as just making sure they get out to vote. And then secondly, if you live in an area where there is a community of Asian-Americans, I encourage you to show up to events, put together events if there aren't any, and start to create a platform, an avenue, a way that people can gather and come together. Because I think you need to have relationships before you are going to take any action or do anything to hold our electeds accountable. And so I think the great thing now in this day and age in 2022 is that there are many Asian American organizations across the country that are working in our communities in civic engagement and getting people out to vote and organizing, engaging legislators. So it may just be a matter of Finding a group that's near you, volunteering your time, working with them. But if not, then, you know, be the organizer, like do a monthly potluck for the Asian community, Asian American community in your area. Gather people just to get to know each other. And once you start getting to know each other, you start to understand what are the challenges people face. And from there, you know, identify who can help you solve the problem and then talking to those appropriate elected officials. And so, If there isn't a community in your area already, that's what I would really encourage you to do. Looking
4: into the future, what makes you hopeful?
1: Oh, so many things. I have a seven-year-old daughter who is Blasian. She's Black and Asian, so we call her Blasian. And I look at her and her friends and even just the way she talks about life and approaches life. She does it with so much confidence and such deep empathy and understanding we are going to be in good hands. Once they come of age and they're leading, we're going to be in good hands. And I'm really hopeful that all the young people that are investing time and energy into our communities are, are doing the same, right? That they are really the future. And so I'm hopeful that while white supremacy and racism is putting up a good fight, that we have generations of people coming up whose norm is not centering whiteness. Understanding that women and girls can do what men can do or better, right? I think being able to see life through the perspective of my daughter once in a while just really does make me feel so hopeful and actually feel like we've accomplished so much more than it feels on the day-to-day grind.
3: This has been a conversation from Future Hindsight, a podcast about civic life and democracy hosted by Mila Atmos. You can find plenty more conversations at futurehindsight.com, and you can follow the show at F-U-T-U-R underscore hindsight. This episode of Future Hindsight was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. I'm Hannah McCarthy, co-host of Civics 101. Music in this episode by Halizniko. And of course, if you are craving some civics after this listen, you can find us where we always are at civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.